Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Nathan Oblak. Hello, and thank you for joining us on the podcast for cultural reformation. I'm Nathan Oblak, and I am again joined by Ryan Aris and Joe Boot. So guys, uh, I'm not sure if you've been made aware of this, but this year's Christmas has been canceled. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. So here are some of the recent comments made by the premier of Manitoba, Brian Pallister. Look, if you don't care for me, I understand. I totally do. I'm the guy who has told you that you cannot shop. I am the person who has come forward here in front of you 75 times and has asked you to do things you've never done before and has asked you to do that every day. I am the person who has told you you can't go to work. I am the premier who has said you can't run your business because we have the toughest restrictions in Canada and it affects people who put their lives into their businesses. I am the person who has come before you and said you can't go to church You can't see your friends. You can't travel. I'm that guy. And I totally get that you don't like that. I don't like saying it. But it's got to be said. Someone has to say it. And so I'm the one that took on this job to say it. Know this about me. I did not get into politics for the adulation. I got into politics to do the right thing, try to save my town, try to help people. I do what I believe is right. I do what I believe is necessary. This is who you need right now. I am that person. I will do what I believe is right. And right now we need to save lives. If you don't think that COVID's real, right now you're an idiot. You need to understand that we're all in this together. You cannot fail to understand this. Stay apart. So I'm the guy who has to tell you to stay apart at Christmas and in the holiday season you celebrate with your faith or without your faith, that you celebrate with normally with friends and with family, that where you share memories and build memories. I'm that guy. And I'll say that because it will keep you safe. I'm the guy who's stealing Christmas to keep you safe because you need to do this now. You need to do the right thing because next year we'll have lots to celebrate and we'll celebrate this year if we do the right thing this year. You don't need to like me. I hope in years to come you might respect me for having the guts to tell you the right thing. And here's the right thing. Stay safe. Protect each other. Love each other. Care for each other. You've got so many ways to show that. But don't get together this Christmas. I mean, I'm almost lost for words. You know, that's the second time I've listened to that speech. Um... Let's just have a reality check for a moment for some context. This is Manitoba in Canada. 
There's 1.4 million people thereabouts living in Manitoba. So far, 407 people in Manitoba have died with, not potentially from, but with COVID-19. So for the mathematicians amongst you, that is 0.00297% of the population of Manitoba. And the premier has just told you that he got into politics to save his town. Interesting language there. Uh, to save his town. And he's the person. He's the guy. He is going to save your life. And uh, I thought it was particularly interesting, actually, that um, he pretty much juxtaposed. He, he presented himself as though there are essentially two perspectives. There are two positions on the current situation. There are the idiots, he called them. That means you're a denier, right? So if you question or challenge the lockdowns and the measures, you must deny that there is a virus out there. You must be a denier, right? You're an idiot. He, on the other hand, is the savior, the savior and he's going to steal Christmas in order to keep you safe. Don't worry, you can celebrate next year. Your grandma might be dead, of course. Uh, your grandfather might be dead next year. You might not be here next year. Uh, but don't worry, you can celebrate next year because next year the state is going to give you permission to go to work. It's going to give you permission to travel. It's going to give you permission to go to church. Uh, that's doing the right thing. And, and this citation, and forgive me if I've cited this before, because I may have said this before and I've forgotten um, on one of our podcasts, a quote from C.S. Lewis. Uh, you're probably okay with it. We can, we we can, can do we, with it, some more C.S. Lewis. It can bear Lewis. being said again, right? Yeah. He said this, Of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience." End quote. I can't think of a, of a more appropriate response to Mr. Pallister. And, uh, you know, apart from the absurdity of that situation in Manitoba um, of percent uh, of, of the population meaningfully affected by this, um, and the fact that travel business, your work, your worship has been all shut down. He, he's doing it in the name of saving you. He got into, into politics to save his town, and now he's going to save your life. And uh, he says, I'm, ask, I'm the guy who's asking you to do this, but he's not been asking, has he? I mean, asking would be saying, would you mind cooperating with this? I've got this idea. I think this might be a good idea. For those who think that that will keep you safe, why don't you do that? Um, but we all need to be bound by our own 
consciences as to whether we see our own grandmother or work for a living, as though the state grants you the right to worship God, as though the state grants you the right to earn a living, as though the state grants you the right to travel, all of these pre-political rights enshrined in the fundamental freedoms of the Charter. Uh, if you're being asked to do something, you don't get ticketed and fined if you don't do it. So I think uh, Lewis really gets to the root of this. This, this, this typifies, absolutely typifies uh, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims, tormenting us for our own good, uh, and they will torment us without end because they do so. He clearly does so with the approval of his own conscience. He thinks he's doing the right thing. He kept saying it. This is righteousness. And maybe you'll look back on my suspension of your right to earn a living and to worship God and to see your dying parents. You'll look back on this and thank me that I did the right thing. That's that's the scary thing here is that you've now got people who, these moral busybodies who believe that they actually have the righteous high ground here and that they're doing this for your good. They're taking away all your freedoms for your good. They're going to save you. Joe, before we get much further, um, it's always a kind of a double-edged sword to uh, to wield statistics like a .000297 and sort of the, the immediate objection that might come to mind is, you know, every one of those is still a life. So a, lo a lot of these objections to skepticism over lockdown, a lot of these objections to... Uh, an opposition to lockdown take the form of, you know, you're just annoyed that you're being inconvenienced, that your status quo is being disrupted. Every, every one of these statistics is a life that's been lost and you're callous and unfeeling for not, uh, for not honoring that. What is the, uh, what is the response from, uh, from this position? Yeah, of course. Well, um, that's, um, uh, attempt at guilt manipulation. Uh, it's the same as saying, you know, if you dare go out in uh, with a mask on, you don't, without a mask on, you don't know who you're killing. Well, you know what? The flu virus is far more deadly for the vast majority of the Canadian population. Uh, we know that for uh, very senior people with comorbidities, COVID-19 is a more dangerous virus. Uh, but for most people, every time you st step out of the door in the winter time, Every time you get in your car, your uh, other people's lives are in your hands um, in a certain sense. Of course, ultimately, all of our lives are in God's hands. My times are in his hands. And all the days ordained for me were written in his book before one of them came to be. So, of course, there will be any and every kind of attempt to use fear and guilt manipulation to tell people that if they question what the state is saying, that's because they hate people, they want people to die, they're callous, they're selfish, um, and that's all driven by fear. It's not. It's not part of the real world. It's not part of reality. H how can how can caring for the sick? How can visiting the elderly? How can be working to provide for your children? How can worshiping God as He commands us to do? How can be? How can obeying God's commands to work six days in seven? and to come around his word and to greet one another and to meet with one another and to come around the Lord's table, be a callous hatred of life. Scripture says the opposite uh, is, is true. And if a man doesn't work, neither should he eat. If a man does not care for his own, he is denied the faith, Paul says, and is worse than an infidel. 
So actually, the people who are killing life or who are despising life are those that say that the the state has the a unilateral authority to shut down the family, who you can see in your family, whether you can be at the bedside of your dying loved ones, whether you can work, whether you can worship God. Those are the ones who are destroying life because Christ says, I have come that you might have life and life in all its fullness. And so obedience to Christ, obedience to God, that's where life is. The state may have another de definition of life. Life for them at the moment is, and for the medical technocracy that we're living under, is the avoidance of all viral material is life. Jesus says he is life, and, and his word is life. Um, so the, uh, those, are, those are facile uh, and, um, frankly, pathetic uh, objections that are thrown up when anybody dares to question uh, this issue. Um, the the reality is is that all of our lives every day are surrounded by every kind of uh, real uh, and um, real and imagined risks that we're surrounded by all of the time. I think it's Tolkien who says, uh, you know, step out of your door. There's no there's no telling what might happen on the road. That's life. That's life. Now, of course, if you're uh, uh, sick, uh, very sick with a serious disease to go around sneezing on everybody deliberately um, would be utterly irresponsible and callous. But who was doing that? No, when people got sick last year, what were they doing? Having chicken soup at home, uh, wrapping themselves up in a blanket, taking the day off work, uh, not taking their flu to the office for the most part. And our kids, what did they do? Well, they went to school and uh, they would bring back various bugs to the house and Nathan I'm sure you got sick from a bug from your kids and Ryan you picked up one from your kids and I picked up one from mine and we go to bed and we uh, we, or we wrestle with it we, we, we take our tablets and we get back to it so we're in a situation now we're in BC for example um, where you've got a Calvary church trying to open and, and, and hold services and, uh, and, and being fined um, just down the road you've got another church that's jam-packed full of a film crew making a movie, filming church services, that's allowed. You know, tr their trucks and their vans filling the car park and the, the church building filled with actors and film crew and everything. That's all good. That's all fine. That's totally fine, as is, of course, being at Costco or being at Walmart or doing your Christmas shopping in Dollarama, wherever you may be. That's all good. But you can't be in a church worshipping God on a Sunday morning. Oh, no, because that's a super spreader. So... Um, I'm afraid I'm getting to the point where I treat those kind of arguments with the disdain that they deserve. They're just ill-informed. They're not thought through. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, in addition to all of that, there's this oftentimes unconscious assumption that, uh, you know, you can, it's, a, it's no longer stop the spread of COVID. It's we can stop death. Right. right. Yeah. Well, the change of narrative has just been... I mean, when you think back, you know, 14 days to flatten the curve, then, you know, save the, uh, save the, in Britain, the NHS or save our, 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 our medical services and our hospitals. Um, uh, so the idea was that we were just going to try and stop them being overwhelmed with all the cases. Then it was basically nobody can catch it. Nobody's allowed to catch it. And now nobody basically is allowed to die anymore. Um, uh, because we need to control all of these vectors, all of these factors. Um, and this is why, you know, you've got this worrying development of a, a sort of medical 
technocracy. Um, and, you know, doubtless in future podcasts, we'll be addressing, you know, some of the threats of um, either mandatory or implicitly mandatory um, medical treatments now um, uh, that uh, many people will feel they have no choice but to take or are being forced to take if they want to travel or go to work or go to a movie theater or a sporting event or whatever it may be. So um, the change in the narrative in itself is disturbing because it keeps adapting itself to the agenda or the goals, the political goals um, that are being pursued right now. And I think the really concerning thing there too, Joe, is it seems like we're adapting our theology as the narrative continues to adapt. And I've been thinking quite a bit about Hebrews 10, uh, which, of course, we've re referenced a lot, speaking about uh, the importance of not neglecting to meet together, as, it, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So there's urgency in that passage, but we're hearing arguments that because the Bible doesn't explicitly put forth how often we need to gather, um, this temporary suspension, again, is back to Ryan's point, just a minor inconvenience. And not gathering weekly is not really that big a deal. But in this argument, people are ignoring the sense of urgency, and they're making that theological shift. And they're allowing the state to determine how often we should meet and how often we are to interpret this passage. Yeah, I mean, we've sort of tried to uh, give some perspective. I mean, we're aware, of course, that there are a lot of churches who haven't met since March or April and have no plan to meet in the foreseeable future. Um, whatever uh, gymnastics one wants to try and pull off with the scriptures, um, the, the notion that uh, do not give up meeting together as someone's in the habit of doing that Paul had in mind that as long as you get together maybe once a year, that's pretty good, um, is strains all credulity, of course. Uh, but look, the reality is the, the pattern of our week was established by the Lord himself at creation. Uh, it's restated in Exodus 20. Uh, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Uh, this is why um, the both the Jewish... Uh, synagogue worship happened on the Saturday, on the Sabbath. It's why in the Christian tradition from the beginning of the first century, actually in the, the disciples would have gone initially to the synagogue on the Saturday, and then they gathered together as well on the first day of the week, on the Sunday. Um, there's, a, there's a significance, a transition there, if you will, in the significance of the Sabbath, of course. There is a Sabbath rest for the people of God, Hebrews says, and it's in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the church for 2,000 years, it doesn't seem to have had a problem understanding the significance of the Sabbath for rest and for worship and what meeting together regularly means. Um, all of a sudden now, as you say, we want to adjust our theology to say, well, uh, well, you know, the Bible doesn't really say, hey, listen, every Sunday you need to get together for worship. Do, do, we, do we really need that text? I mean, does, does that really need to be in the Bible uh, for us to know that this is a vital and critical part of what it means to be a Christian of what it means to, to to walk with God. Now, I think, again, it just strains all credulity to think that we can take that sort of argument seriously. And <clears throat> this is something that we were talking about earlier, but the uh, the idea of, well, Scripture doesn't say, doesn't, d doesn't make it explicit, so we can we can comply in good conscience with sort of whatever the state demands. And we're just trying to 
think, uh, Nathan and I earlier about what, uh, let's, let's do a thought experiment. Like where else could we, could we press this and what would be the conclusion? So we were thinking like, what is, uh, well, the state tells, or so not the state scripture tells you, tells us to be fruitful and multiply, but it doesn't tell us how many children to have. Chi- or how many times to try. Right. Yeah. China, China's got a, uh, a two child policy. Like, is that, are we, are we okay with that? Is, or is this, is this not a gospel issue? Is this a, uh, is this a matter of secondary importance or? Very interesting, very interesting point. I think the, uh, the rhetorical question answers itself. Uh, you know, where on earth could anybody draw the conclusion that, uh, the scriptures gives the state the authority to determine um, how many children uh, a family should have, but of course that has been tried by from the from right back to the the, the classical Greek philosophers. Uh, you look at Plato and Aristotle; um, they believed in their utopias. You know, in um, uh, Plato's Republic, for example, that the state should be able to um, basically tell you how many kids you should be having and when abortions need to happen and so on. Of course, that's as we've paganized and secularized as a culture, it's no surprise that we're coming back to those kinds of things. I mean, all of this population control, um, along with um, the, the much of the climate alarmism that feeds it and is feeding into this whole narrative that we're in right now. I mean, we're going to deal, I think, next week's podcast with Klaus Schwab and his book, COVID-19, The Great Reset. Um and uh, these kinds of things are what, when, when man starts to play God, when the state tries to play God, this is where the state will try and intervene. And I think it's a very good illustration. You push the logic of that, uh, of this position, and the state can start ruling on almost anything. So to, uh, to go back to the beginning a little bit, Nathan, you started us off by announcing that Christmas is canceled. Sorry to do that. Yeah, no, the kids are going to be upset. <laughs> But uh, I just I just wanted to get your take on this, Joe. We're uh, we're told sometimes, or we're uh, we're asked, you know, why do you why do you go on? Why is the Ezra Institute always on about politics and policy and culture? And what does this have to do with the gospel? And this seems at at this time of year, at this Christmas season, as we're being told what and where and how and with whom we can or cannot celebrate, there's a, uh, a sort of rare convergence of these uh, political and gospel themes. I wonder if you can just comment on that, what bearing the Christmas season has on how we respond in, in this, uh, mm-hmm. this COVID time. Yeah, that's, I think, uh, uh, a pertinent question. You know, I think for, for so long, I think for several generations really now, we've been so accustomed to think as evangelicals, as thinking uh, thinking about the gospel as a personal message of my personal salvation uh, and the transformation of my private life and my private world so that I can accept several propositions about forgiveness and justification by faith so that I can go to heaven. And that when you're really focused on that, then you're focused on the gospel. And everything else, well, it's not really 
gospel centric it's not really gospel focused if we're not really talking about those that that narrow band of what some would call soteriology although i think it's a very underrealized soteriology um that that i put my personal faith in jesus so i've got personal salvation so i can personally go to heaven and that's where it ends and that fundamentally is the gospel we're so accustomed to that that when uh we talk about the significance of actually christmas itself we miss its we almost entirely miss its true meaning its full meaning its full significance and you know as a result the the god of much modern evangelicalism has become something of a buttercup you know it's sort of like um it's the god who you know picks us daisies and you know, wants us to be happy in our personal faith and he's going to take us off to heaven and don't need to worry about the nasty world. And uh, why can't we just focus on that? Why do we have to be bothered and troubled by all these other issues? And I think that just shows the truncation of our faith, the, the, the evacuation really of the substance of the glory and fullness of the gospel because of these dualisms that have crept in, that there's an upper story and a lower story of reality. And in the lower story is culture and politics and education and law and the arts and everything else. And in the upper story is our soul and our personal salvation and our place in heaven. And the upper story is really important. And so actually you can do most of that on Zoom. And the lower story just really isn't that important, the body and, and, and relationships and all of those things. That's just not that significant laying hands on the sick and so on uh the transformation of cultural life so we're familiar with the charge obviously but i think it's a brilliant opportunity right now at christmas to actually talk specifically uh, a little bit today about that while these premiers are trying to cancel christmas and actually think about um, its significance. So uh, without wanting to turn this podcast into a, uh, in this second half into a Bible study, I thought, actually, why don't we look at some of the key scriptures that help us understand the significance of all this? Um, let me start in Numbers uh, chapter 24, and verse, uh, beginning at verse 17, uh, the scripture says, "'A star shall come out of Jacob.'" and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So we've got important biblical imagery there, of course, and immediately we'll recognize the significance of the star that rose in the east. A scepter, that's rule, shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion. Obviously, a reference there in uh, Balaam's final oracle uh, to the Messiah, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and then uh, a, a noted passage in Ezekiel, um, Ezekiel chapter 21, uh, beginning at verse 26, the second half of verse 26, exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. A ruin, 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 I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. 
or as the King James says, the one whose right it is, that is, the, whose right it is to rule. Uh, these are, of course, all prophecies concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So that's a reference to the prophecies of, his, of the coming forth of the Messiah. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the, to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Um, uh, uh, Ryan, could you read for me uh, the passage in Isaiah that will be familiar to the vast majority of people as well? Yep. So this is Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So we're all familiar with that uh, text that's so frequently read at Christmas. The the wonderful counselor could be actually uh, translated there in the Hebrew, a sort of miraculous strategist. You know, when we think of a counselor today, you know, we're thinking maybe of counselor Deanna Troy in Star Trek The Next Generation. You're about to sit down yeah, on a couch and get some general counseling. <laughs> you might be you thinking know. that, Joe. <laughs> As a Trekkie, I must admit. Uh, that I'm familiar with that concept of the counselor. And then you've got the idea of the wonderful counselor. So, oh, what a wonderful sort of sense of lovely, right? Uh, the force, I think, there in the Hebrew is this miraculous strategist, the government being on his shoulders um, and the zeal of the Lord accomplishing this. So you notice as you hear these texts that are all anticipating what we call the Christmas story and the arrival of the Messiah are all about scepters and kingdoms and rule and dominion and authority and so on. And this is really important because we need to draw a distinction between the Basileia in the Greek in the New Testament, the kingdom and the ecclesia, the church, because this is another dualism. So often we think, well, unless we're talking about something specifically about the church, we're talking about culture and politics and law and these things. Well, we're not really talking about Christian things. What's that got to do with the gospel? That's not to do with the church. But no, the kingdom of God is about the rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is intimately connected with that, intimately involved in that, but they're not identical. They're not one and the same, and the New Testament never collapses them. Nathan, could you read uh, for us uh, Psalm 2 fairly uh, quickly, if you would? Mm-hmm. Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. 
The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So clearly, um, there is the, the, the reality is that, that the Messiah, Christ, is no buttercup. God is no buttercup. He's the ruler. Uh, he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Uh, that's uh, crystal clear in Revelation 1, chapter 5. We'll go back to Revelation in a moment. Um, but the that messianic anticipation there of Psalm 2 is about the uh, nations needing to come into obedience to the rule of Christ the King, that there will be a plot, as, as it were. There is a spiritual conspiracy against the anointed, but he will rule over them. He will bring them into subjection, which is, of course, something anticipated in the book of Hebrews. Now, I also want you to read for me, Nathan, a shorter psalm, Psalm 110, and um, uh, uh, read it, and then I've got a couple of comments on this very interesting psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And give us verse 1 one more time. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, I want to make this crystal clear. This is really important. That verse, taken so Psalm 110, verse 1, is the most cited passage from the Old Testament in the New Testament. No text of Scripture is cited more frequently by the New Testament authors than Psalm 110. That tells us something really important about the rule, the reign, the kingship, the authority, uh, the dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Christmas season, the, the, the Christmas celebration, recognizes the coming of the Prince of, Ki uh, of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And of course, it's recognized by the kings coming from the east, bringing him their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And um, it's something that's actually picked up by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, when people say, you know, what's this got to do with the gospel? Well, let's hear the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Psalm 110. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the gospel. 
This is the this is the essence of the gospel, the rule and reign, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the essence of the gospel. Now, when when um, Peter, of course, in Acts chapter two, he's preaching. He cites Psalm 110 as well. When Paul cites it, their understanding of this is that the death and resurrection were an act of war. The death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ was an act of war against everything that opposes the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I'm not come to bring peace, but a sword. And it's, it's going to divide. It's going to divide people. The, the, we know that Paul tells us that the cross was an open, made an open spectacle, a public display of every principality and power, right, where Christ triumphed over them. And, of course, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ and the session of Christ to the right hand of power and authority, that's the gospel. Why is it that we seem to stop the gospel at the cross and my personal forgiveness of sins without recognizing that the, the significance of the cross and the power of the resurrection and the significance of the ascension and session of Jesus Christ to the right hand of God the Father. And which is why, of course, the Lord Jesus at the end of the book of Matthew says, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Now, when King David was writing, you know, um, the, the Psalms, and we've got Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, in David's time, that image of um, uh, the, 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 the footstool is, is that the conquering king, as a symbol of his victory, would put his feet on the neck of the conquered king, of the conquered ruler, as a symbol of his authority over them. So this is the image that the Bible is invoking, that Jesus Christ is putting his foot on the neck in history of all power and all authority, and he's bringing it into subjection to himself. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken so that only that which cannot be shaken will remain. And so the reason that we go on, as we do, about culture, about gospel culture, and its implications in all of life, including this area of politics, which is prescient right now, is that this is an ideological conflict. This is a spiritual conflict. It gets expressed in ideology. Scripture is plain about that because it tells us that... Uh, the, there are there are uh, ideas that set themselves up against the knowledge of God, right? There are lofty ideas that set themselves up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive and we bring it in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the strongholds that we encounter, that the Institute is battling, and that we are encouraging all Christians to battle, are these ideologies, uh, diabolic ideologies that come against Christ and his cross, uh, which is, an, in a certain sense, is a throne. And he, he is raised from the dead and now sits at the right hand of all power and all authority. And that's why we have to um, readily recognize this important distinction between Basileia, kingdom, and ecclesia, called out church, uh, that we, we are a, a kingdom people, um, but the kingdom of God is over much more. His rule is over much more than simply the church institute. And that's where some of this false uh, duality comes from. We're, we're in a conflict against deceptive words 
uh, versus the Word of God. And I want my last scripture um, to 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 come actually from the Book of Revelation, uh, where there is an absolutely marvelous passage in Revelation chapter nineteen, which I think um, summarizes this whole thought tremendously. So, uh, Revelation chapter nineteen, beginning at verse eleven, which kind of encapsulates this ideological war, this spiritual war that we're in uh, between all the enemies of God and the word of God. Uh, John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, that's crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, of course, which we know is the Word of God from, from, uh, from Scripture. The Apostle Paul tells us that. Comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. There's Psalm 2, Nathan. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And actually, when we say, no, we're going to worship at Christmas. We're going to gather at Christmas. We're going to come together to praise the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords over a medical technocracy. We're not despising life. Uh, we're not despising our neighbor. We're walking in obedience to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who's worthy of all the praise and all the glory. This is the gospel. These texts are the gospel. He has many diadems on his head. He's got a name written. He is Word of God. He's using that to rule all the nations. And he has a name written on his very own thigh uh, and on his robe, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that lordship and that authority is higher than that of the premier of Manitoba or any premier or any prime minister or any king, uh, any ruler, any dictator, any uh, aristocrat, any autocrat even any ecclesiocracy, our allegiance is first and foremost to Christ the King. He's the one who is lying there in the manger. That's why the kings come from the east and fall down before him and worship him. It's why the shepherds come and worship him. This is the Christ that we worship. Yes, he, yes he's delivered us from our sins. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. He set us free from the power of sin and death, and he's setting all creation free from its bondage to corruption through his redemptive work in our lives. And that's why no subject is off the table for the Institute. No subject is off the podcast. Uh, and it's why we'll talk about politics and culture and the lockdown and all of these things in light of the gospel, because this is what the gospel means. This is the significance of the gospel. A ruler shall come out of a star shall come out of Jacob, and a ruler shall come out of Israel. His dominion is uh, a dominion from, as Psalm 72 says, from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth.
so Nathan looks ready to wrap this this podcast up right now. So I'm going to finish with a, a, a citation from Bonhoeffer. I've been reading this week some of his sermons around the Christmas period in the 1930s when he was dealing with the emergence of uh, a medical technocracy, uh, increasingly uh, a threatening, uh, seeing the emergence of a threatening dictatorship. And he... I am seeing parallels. Uh, he says that I quote, the gospel is eternal and remains despite everything. It remains the one and only true proclamation of God and his lordship over the world. And though there be thousands of religions and views and opinions and philosophies in the world, and though they construct the most attractive of ideologies, and though the hearts of the people are moved and won over by them, they are all shattered by death. Wow, isn't that true with this whole COVID situation? They must all be broken because they are not true. Only the gospel remains. And he goes on, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment is come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. That is the first command of the gospel. Fear God and you will have nothing else to fear. Don't fear what the next day may bring. Don't fear other people. Don't fear violence and power, even when it comes to you personally and can rob you of your life. Don't fear the high and mighty in the world. Don't fear yourself. Don't fear your sins. From all these fears, you will be set free. For you, they are no longer there. But fear God and him alone, for he has the power over all the powers of this world. The whole world is in the fear of God. He has power to give us life or to destroy us. All other powers are mere game, are a mere game. I think um, a reminder that that's the central message of the gospel that all power and authority belongs to Jesus Christ is really important at this moment, this cultural moment. Well, that's a great place to wrap up our conversation for this week, and we hope you've been blessed and encouraged by it. This has been the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute, reminding you that from him and through him and to him are all things. We hope you will join us again for next week's Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy Every year about this time